Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19, is caused by a novel coronavirus first identified in Wuhan, China in December 2019. As the virus continues to spread and impact countries around the world, dermatologists have encountered new challenges that affect their practices and patients. Please join us as we hear dermatologists discuss various topics related to COVID-19. Welcome back to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Shadi Karosh from the Department of Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Amber Atwater, Associate Professor of Dermatology and Director of the Contact Dermatitis and Patch Testing Center at Duke University Medical Center, President of the American Contact Dermatitis Society and member of the North American Contact Dermatitis Group. Amber, welcome. Thank you so much. Today we're discussing a topic that has been in the forefront of practice for many dermatologists this year, occupational and contact dermatitis in the setting of the COVID pandemic, and how a group of contact dermatitis experts has been shedding light on this issue. This year, contact dermatitis became an epidemic of sorts on its own, a more emerging issue with a larger population and newer populations of patients who had not previously been affected, suddenly clamoring to get into clinic, or rather telemedicine visits, and many dermatologists who don't normally have to wear the hat of contact dermatitis expert found themselves having to play the role fairly often. So I want to start by saying that I really appreciate the papers that your group has published in the JAD and the Journal of Dermatitis on occupational dermatitis to facial protective equipment this year and provided the guidance on this issue. And to ask about the background and inspiration for these studies, tell us about how your team of authors came together and began systematically studying this issue. Yeah, so this has been a really interesting experience. One of my colleagues and friends, Dr. Jeff Yu, contacted me early in the COVID pandemic, in March actually, and he had an idea or a thought that hand dermatitis rates might go up because of the need for hand washing during our pandemic. And I had actually heard at that time about another colleague, Dr. Corey Dunnick, who was already writing a paper on that subject. And so based on that, we got together with Corey. But as I started thinking about our hand dermatitis paper, I was also getting emails from my employee health department here at Duke. And they were telling me about cases of mask or facial dermatitis related to masks. And I thought, wow, I don't think there's much information about this in the literature. My employee health department was asking me what to do, and I really needed to do some background research to find out what was out there and what we could recommend. And so after having worked with the hand dermatitis team and having worked with Dr. Yu, we decided to put a team together to work on the question of mask dermatitis and facial dermatitis as well. So we worked with a group of contact dermatitis specialists. We put assignments out for each of the group members on what we were gonna focus on and what we were gonna look for. And in the end, we ended up with such a large paper that we actually had to split it into two. And that's how we ended up with the one paper that focused on the systematic review of the literature. And that's the paper that we published in JAD. And then our second paper that focused on relevant allergens and what to do about these allergens. And that's the paper that we are about to publish in the journal Dermatitis. So it's a cool story about how we got together as colleagues and friends during a time of stress to answer a question that we didn't know the answers to. It is a good story about how research ideas come up. 
I remember some of the HIV and epidemiology experts in our field telling me the stories of how dermatologists contributed to identifying the HIV epidemic. And it sounds like there's a theme throughout all the emerging issues like this in medicine of listening to the questions we are getting. In your case, I remember you telling me that you were getting incessant emails from the Occupational Health Department at Duke. And I'm sure you and many of your colleagues who are experts in contact dermatitis were getting emails and questions from your colleagues who needed assistance with problems that they weren't used to fielding. And I understand some of the members of your group actually set out to do detective work with some of the companies, calling them up and trying to get lists of ingredients for the N95 and surgical masks that weren't readily available. Is that right? I can imagine it must be difficult to do patch testing without that information. That's exactly right. Believe it or not, only certain products are required to include ingredients on the label, and those requirements are different in different countries. The boxes for masks do not usually list ingredients. So when that happens, we can look at the literature or we can contact the manufacturers ourselves. As you might imagine, this can be complex. In this case, Dr. Ari Goldmans and Dr. Sarah Chisholm contacted 31 companies and only received information from six N95 manufacturers and three surgical mask manufacturers. For the rest, there's either no response from the company, they sourced their masks from other manufacturers, or they were not able to disclose or release the information. And you've got that exactly right. It's really difficult to know exactly what to test if we don't know what's in the products. And in terms of your investigation of the ingredients, can you explain some of the themes that emerged? For example, from your paper in the JAD, I gathered that formaldehyde and formaldehyde releasers were one of the major categories of concern. However, that different aspects of the mask also presented the problem of other agents like metals or elastics or adhesives as well. Can you give us an overview of the suspects we should be looking for in patients that come in with this problem? So sure, we don't know every ingredient in every N95 respirator or surgical mask, but I can share with you those that we think are more common or that we can find at least in the literature or from our manufacturers. So the chemical that is related to formaldehyde and formaldehyde releasers is polypropylene. And polypropylene was the most commonly identified chemical in our study. And it was reported to be in the outer shell and the filter of N95 respirators and the body of surgical masks. Polypropylene on its own is not a big allergen, but it's important because we now have seen at least two case reports of formaldehyde or formaldehyde-releasing chemicals that are associated with polypropylene masks. Once in 2003 during the SARS epidemic, and again more recently during this COVID-19 pandemic. So what happens is that polypropylene is melted during the production of non-woven textiles, such as mask materials, and this leads to formaldehyde byproducts that may not be completely removed. In addition to that, it's thought that formaldehyde can be released during the degradation of polypropylene during routine use or routine wear of a mask. So both cases identified both formaldehyde and formaldehyde releasers. And specifically the second case, we identified formaldehyde and bronopol, which is a formaldehyde releaser. Some of the other common allergens that we identified were rubber accelerators, like you mentioned, and they can be important for ear pieces or ear loops or even straps. And those include chemicals like carbamix, thyram mix, mercaptomix, and NN diphenylguanidine. Other important components, also, like you mentioned, are metals. And these can be relevant for the nose piece and for staples that might be present in masks. 
Uh, we can test for presence of nickel release with dimethylglyoxine. Um, and we did in our study, we looked at uh, five different surgical masks and N95 masks and found that two out of four surgical masks did release nickel and two did not. And the N95 mask that we tested did not release nickel. Those masks that have nose pieces that are not made of stainless steel are likely made of aluminum. And in the case of those that had negative nickel release tests, we suspected that they were made of aluminum. And then three other important components. One is adhesives. And these were noted in several of the masks that we looked at. And these include chemicals like acrylates, and then also ethylene vinyl acetate or EVA was identified in the outer shell and the nose foam piece of masks. So ethylene vinyl acetate itself is not a common allergen, but a chemical called acetophenone azine has been identified in EVA-based materials, and that chemical acetophenone azine is an allergen, and in fact is the 2021 American Contact Dermatitis Society Allergen of the Year. And then finally, polyurethane is another component that's found in masks. There was actually a recent case of a reaction to polyurethane reported in the literature, and this was from a sponge strip that was inside a mask at the nose piece area, and there are several isocyanate-type chemicals that can be used to form polyurethane. So those are the most common ones, and those are the ones that I'd make sure to test if a patient was coming to my clinic. You hit on one of my favorite topics of dermatology trivia and patient education, which is the contact allergen of the year. I think that your group is providing a tremendous service by naming these contact allergens of the year because I can't tell you how many times I use that information to educate patients about the importance of certain emerging allergens. So you mentioned acrylates, one of the previous contact allergens of the year. Can you talk about the new one? Sure. So yeah, the 2021 contact allergen of the year is acetophenone azine, but it's not because of COVID and not because of our pandemic. It's luck of the draw, maybe, that this happens to also be a chemical that's theoretically present in some masks. So the reason that this got chosen as the allergen of the year is because it's an emerging allergen, meaning an allergen that we may be seeing more frequently or that we recently identified. And the reason it has come out as the allergen of the year is because this chemical, acetophenone azine, can be found in ethylene vinyl acetate, and specifically in ethylene vinyl acetate-based materials, like, for example, soft shin guards. And so several of the cases in the literature that led us to choose this as the allergen of the year is our cases of shin guard-related allergic contact dermatitis. And so, as I mentioned, EVA has been identified in some masks, but we didn't choose it as the allergen of the year uh, just because of mass reactions. I wish we had. It, it might have been more exciting. I love your honesty. While it turned out to be timely in this case. Yep, that's exactly right. And how often in these cases do you suspect that it's a true allergy versus irritant reaction? Do you think that it follows the standard pattern where irritant reactions are more common overall? Or are we now testing affected patients often enough to see if there's a fairly common, truly allergic trigger? So I think this is an emerging field or an emerging question. But I would say that the authors of these two papers, and I would venture to say most patch test specialists, think that these mask reactions are mostly irritant contact dermatitis. 
However, with a new dermatitis and a new exposure like a mask, it's really important to evaluate for contact allergy and complete patch testing for our patients. And also, of course, to avoid exposures if an allergy is identified. So it sounds like it's still something that's being characterized and to be determined in the epidemiology. I would agree with that. And what about the dreaded mask knee and other forms of reactions that we are seeing under the mask? In addition to the types of dermatitis we've been discussing, acne and acneiform reactions and urticarial reactions have also been a problem for many people. What causes do you suspect for these and what guidance would you give clinicians for their management? That's exactly right. In our systematic review, we found that the most common diagnosis associated with mask reactions were irritant contact dermatitis, allergic contact dermatitis, acne or acneiform reactions, and contact urticaria. Acneiform eruptions were definitely reported back during the 2003 SARS epidemic, and we're definitely seeing them now too. The theory is that these outbreaks are happening because of rubbing or pressure, and some call this acne mechanica, and or because of occlusion of underlying sweat glands when the wearer is wearing a mask. We recommend washing the face after a work shift, choosing appropriate cleansers and using gentle skincare, just like you would for a typical acne patient, and standard acne therapy. There was a case series from the 2004 SARS epidemic that reported success with topical retinoids and systemic antibiotics for N95 respirator related acne. But really, you should choose the appropriate therapy for your patient based on the scenario. I suspect that contact urticaria is exacerbated by pressure and close contact as well. And avoidance and standard therapy for urticaria should still be most successful. Okay. And speaking of discomfort and pressure, what about the wounds that we've seen on the face of healthcare workers after prolonged wearing of the N95 masks? It, we've seen indentation, skin erosions on the face in folks that have to wear these masks for really long periods of time. Any recommendations for management or ways to work around this? Sure. So some of the wound care or wound management societies have published some really nice literature on this. And we summarize some of it in our publications. This can be tricky. And before I say anything else, it's important to understand that any wound management strategies need to be approved by your local institution, especially if it's in regards to N95 respirators. The different strategies are threefold, the way I think about it. First is general or gentle skincare recommendations. Just like we would for standard general dermatology patients, we recommend a gentle cleanser and a daily moisturizer. The wound specialists recommend topicals should be applied anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours before work shifts or before donning the protective mask. Because there's a range of recommendations in our paper, we said that whatever the time interval that's determined, it should be long enough for the patient or the mask wearer to have a non-moist non-tacky, non-macerated cutaneous surface. So the skin should not still be wet from whatever's been applied at the time that the mask is applied. So the second focus is avoidance. So several of the survey typed studies that we looked at for these projects identified that wearing a mask for more than six hours a day was a risk factor for what they described as adverse cutaneous reactions. So prolonged wear time increases the risk of having facial dermatitis or wounds or other skin manifestations secondary to the mask. So strategies to help this include 
You could change your mask type when irritant or allergy is suspected. You could change your type of strap or ear loop type if the ears are affected. So for example, if your ears are affected, you could switch from ear loops to tie straps or even alternate those on an every other day basis. You could use the head straps that we've all heard about now or headbands to pull ear loops away from the ears and get some relief there. And you could just alternate the type of mask or type of strap, like I mentioned, to give some relief to the skin. Also, you can decrease the time that the mask stays in place. You could take longer breaks between shifts. Some groups have recommended removing the mask about every four hours. Others have recommended remove the mask for 15 minutes every two hours. And then yet another recommended lifting the mask away from the face for five minutes every two hours. That is, of course, in a safe environment and as long as your local institution has approved those things. The third thing that we've focused on is barrier management or management of the skin with a barrier. And we looked at kind of two bigger groups here. Barrier creams, such as silicone or dimethicone-based barrier creams, acrylate-based creams, and our paper in dermatitis has a table that goes through all the different options. It is a little bit more difficult to find some of these right now or to find an exact specific product right now because of COVID. But if you have a few options, sometimes it's possible to find one that would work for you. And so for the second component of barrier management, we think about prophylactic dressings. And so there are gonna be different recommendations from different wound specialty groups. And again, it's important to make sure that you're following your local institutional regulations about whether or not you can use it at all. But there are different types of thin barrier type prophylactic dressings that are out there. And these options are available in our dermatitis paper as well. Thank you. Those are very helpful recommendations. And I'm so glad to hear that your group within the dermatology community and possibly others outside have begun to study and publish on this issue, which will hopefully result in increased support for healthcare workers and alleviation of their occupational exposures in this regard. In the cases where the problem is truly allergic contact dermatitis, what guidance would you have for clinicians out there who might not be used to patch testing as a part of their daily practice? I mean, it's interesting, for example, that in some cases, the relevant allergens we've discussed are actually included in the true test. So perhaps clinicians who are not contact dermatitis experts who are used to, for example, performing the expanded panels of patch testing might still be able to engage in testing and identifying these relevant allergens. But having done part of my training with a contact dermatitis expert, I can also appreciate that there's an art to placing and reading a patch test. So what things should we keep in mind? How can we make the workup most high yield for patients? Sure. So of the chemicals that I mentioned, we can test formaldehyde, bronopol, and other formaldehyde releasers, carbamix, mercaptomix, mercaptobenzothiazole, thiorem mix, and nickel, all with their true test. So you could get started with the true test. And if you have experience with this, you could also test mask components. But to get a comprehensive or complete test, you may wish to send your patient to a patch test specialist. Of course, you can also try the strategies I just mentioned. And if the patient is using a polypropylene mask, ask them to switch to a polyester-based mask. 
Well, you read my mind because my next question was going to be about avoidance and substitution. Traditionally, once allergens are identified, we guide patients in terms of avoidance, the gold standard, if possible. And that's when we find out how lucky or unlucky someone is going to be. As I'm sure you know better than most, some ingredients are sort of ubiquitous and very difficult to avoid. So my next question is, are there good hypoallergenic and substitution options out there in terms of personal protective equipment for those who need it. So you mentioned one. Are there others? Yeah, so this is a really difficult problem right now because even if we can identify an allergen, we may or may not be able to recommend a mask that is allergen-free because, as you know, we only know the ingredients for a few different masks. And then, even if we can, it's possible that the specific mask can't be currently attained due to the current PPE shortages. So it's really tricky. So if I know there's a formaldehyde or formaldehyde releaser allergy, I'll recommend a non-polypropylene mask, which usually means polyester. And if there's an ear loop problem, I'll recommend tie straps. And if there's a nickel problem, I can test for nickel release in mask nose pieces and recommend masks that don't release nickel. And finally, I haven't even mentioned this yet, but if there's a question of dye allergy, and there are rare reports in the literature of this, I'll recommend a mask that is white in color. I've been lucky in that I've been able to partner with employee health at my institution, and they know what can and cannot be sourced for our employees. And then you asked about what resources are out there for patients who are affected. The resources for ingredient lists in masks are, to my knowledge at this moment, limited to our papers, or if patients or physicians contact companies directly. Contacting companies directly, as we showed with our study, is always challenging, and that's actually been well documented in the literature for lots of different products in North America and sometimes in Europe as well. So that's difficult for patients, especially the first place to start is your dermatologist, and hopefully they can find the resources from there. I can imagine this is particularly difficult because as we've discussed, it's still an emerging problem that's being characterized. And then on top of this, as you mentioned, sometimes the companies for various reasons are not very forthcoming with that information. So again, we really appreciate your group within the dermatology community leading the charge in terms of characterizing this issue for the rest of us. And what about resources out there for clinicians and residents who are trying to build their knowledge and help patients with contact dermatitis. For example, I know that your group, the American Contact Dermatitis Society and the North American Contact Dermatitis Group do provide some education and resources. What resources are out there for clinicians and residents who are trying to build their knowledge and help their patients with contact dermatitis? Can you tell us about some of the resources that they can take advantage of? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So as you know, I'm really involved with the American Contact Dermatitis Society. And throughout the pandemic, actually, the American Contact Dermatitis Society has had virtual events, which include things like cases, uh, journal club, and even a resident board review session. And these are not specific to masks per se or mask dermatitis, but can help those who are interested in improving contact dermatitis and patch testing knowledge. We, of course, also have an annual meeting every year around the same time as the American Academy of Dermatology meeting. And every other year, we have a mid-year meeting as well. 
residents are free to join the American Conduct Dermatitis Society. And with that, they get access to CAMP, which is our contact allergen management program, and electronic access to the Dermatitis Journal. And so those are really nice ways for residents to get more knowledge on contact dermatitis as well. And then just to put a plug in for CAMP, CAMP is not necessarily great for mask dermatitis because we don't have mask brands in CAMP, but CAMP is great for physicians or other users who are looking for lists of products that are free of allergens that they might have identified for a patient. So that's a really nice resource for members of the American Contact Dermatitis Society. I think the CAMP database is amazing. I found it so helpful for patients and it's amazing how you can just put in an allergen and it will generate this great handout for patients, you know, with their list of things that they can use and lists of things that they should avoid. I think that it's a tremendous resource. And did you mention to me that there was actually an app for this? Yes. So there's an app for that, Shadi. Several years ago, one of our camp directors, Dr. Andy Sheeman, spearheaded an effort to develop an app for camp. And it's really nice because patients can put in their own personalized codes into their app on their phone, and then they can use that app for personalized shopping. They can take it with them to the grocery store instead of having to bring a stack of papers. I like it too when patients come to clinic because they can show me their phone and I can, for example, write a prescription for a topical corticosteroid that I know is on the patient's safe list. So it's good for not only the patient, but uh, physicians who might need to write prescriptions for topicals for patients who have allergens that might be present in topicals. Thank you. Those are great resources. And finally, I wanted to ask you if there are any other pearls that you'd like to leave our listeners with. So I think there are two things I want to point out. The first is I really want to point out the importance of partnering with your local employee or occupational health experts. Early on in the pandemic, they heard about this first from our employees. I was able to help them with patient handouts and along the way with cases as well because of the relationship that I had already developed with our employee health department. And they really deserve credit for helping me and my research team think about this as an important area of focus during the COVID pandemic. The other important pearl is to always be open and ready for research ideas. They can come up when you least expect it. I mean, I definitely didn't anticipate a pandemic this spring, and we developed some really strong publications that actually may help people out of being ready for ideas when they come along. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of ongoing open communication with colleagues in your field of expertise. The patch test experts who I worked with on these projects all had excellent contributions, and I would not have had the opportunity to work with all of them had I not already had ongoing communication. So those pearls, I think, are really important, and they're the reason that we were able to be successful in these projects. Great points, Amber. Thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this edition of Dialogues. We hope you stay safe and well. The American Academy of Dermatology has numerous COVID-19 guidance and resources on managing your practice, legislation and regulation, and teledermatology. Please visit www.aad.org for this information.